0: The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. For the last several weeks, we've been talking about this idea that sometimes it takes a party. And this idea, it literally comes from looking at the life of Jesus as we read about it in the New Testament and seeing some of the very unusual, some of the surprising places that Jesus actually shows up. Now, this uh, should be something that interests all of us. First, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you, you certainly want to know where it is that Jesus is going because following him means that eventually you're going to end up there as well. And secondly, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then, um, then I think you actually want to pay particular attention to this because maybe for you, one of the reasons why uh, you would say that you are not a follower of Jesus is because maybe in your past... Um, somebody or perhaps a, a group of somebody's, maybe actually told you that you c- couldn't be uh, a follower of Jesus because, uh, because they told you that Jesus doesn't do the things that, that you do and Jesus doesn't like the things that you like and you know Jesus doesn't go to the places that, that you go and so you were told that if you wanted to follow Jesus that you had to start behaving like Jesus and see, one of the incredible ironies is that when we actually open up the New Testament and we read about the life of Jesus, we find that even Jesus didn't necessarily behave the way that some of us were told that, that we needed to behave. And one of the most challenging things about Jesus, and this is something that challenges me, and so I, I hope that it challenges you, is that you, as you read through the New Testament, you find that, that people who were not like Jesus, they truly liked Jesus. And so consequently, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, the the call for us to actually follow him is also the call for every single one of us to actually exemplify the kind of life that Jesus lived. Which, let's just be honest about for a moment, isn't easy, is it? Because, see, one of the things that's true of me, and so I'm guessing it's probably true for each of you um, that are followers of Jesus as well is that it seems like, for me at least, the longer it is that, that I follow Jesus, the less time I actually end up spending with people who are not like me. And that's the exact opposite of what it is that we see in the life of, of Jesus. And if we're really serious as a church and as people about bringing Jesus into every single one of our relationships, then we've got to be honest about that tension and think about what it is Are we going to actually do as a result of that. What are we going to do to change that? And one of the interesting things that we discover in in watching Jesus and following Jesus throughout his life is that he dealt with that very same dilemma himself. And the way he dealt with that dilemma was actually going to the places that people never expected him to go by actually bringing into relationship with himself the very people that had been ostracized by everybody else within their society. In fact, you may even know this, Um, the Pharisees actually accused Jesus of being a a drunkard and of being a glutton because Jesus attended so many parties. Matthew actually records this for us. This is what they said uh, about Jesus. Jesus was constantly talking about parties, teaching about parties. He even compared the kingdom of God to a party. Jesus loved parties because, see, Jesus loved people. And one of the things that that, um, for for all of us, I understand that for many of us, um, perhaps that word party um, is a little bit awkward. Maybe for you, that's a word that kind of puts you on the defensive a little bit. Um, because of your own past, or your own family, or maybe struggles that that you've faced, or people that you know have faced throughout the years. And so, um, if you've been with us for the last couple weeks, hopefully you've already figured this out, Uh, but let me just get really clear about this for a moment. The kind of party that that we're talking about throughout the course of this series, the kind of parties we would love to encourage you to host and be a part of this summer, to invite your friends, and your family, and your neighbors to. See, the kind of parties that, that we're talking about is this. Our kind of party is any party, we'll put this up on the screen, any party is, which is an effort to celebrate, to serve, or to enjoy each other in a way that actually adds value to life. Right? That's the kind of party that we want you to be a part of. That's what we want to encourage you to, to be a part of this summer, to be a part of any party that actually celebrates, serves, or helps you to enjoy and adds value into the life Uh, of other people. See, a party can be any effort. So that means a party can be big, it can be small, it can be fast, uh, it can be long. A party can be any effort to simply celebrate, right? A party can actually honor or celebrate another person. It can pay tribute to a person. In fact, this is what we did as a nation last weekend. We took time out to celebrate and to honor and to pay tribute to the countless men and women that, that we don't know, right? And even some that we do personally, who gave their lives in service of our nation to have the freedoms that we enjoy as a people. That's what we did last weekend in that kind of a party. A party can also serve another person. A party can actually help or support someone. And a party can help us to simply enjoy uh, other people. And for some of us here today, the simple truth that we need to be reminded of this morning is that there is absolutely nothing wrong with having fun. In fact, having fun and enjoying other people is actually a theological idea because as followers of Jesus, we should be the most fun-loving, life-giving people on the entire planet. And listen, listen. Enjoying each other, celebrating each other, and serving each other, what does that mean? It means that there's more than just you at the party, right? A party always has to consist of at least two people. Now, you need to hear me say this because I am the most socially introverted person on the planet, and I know that many of you just have a hard time believing that because because you see me up here in front of you all the time, but I promise you this. If there was a way for me to have a party by myself that wasn't just plain weird, okay, I would have figured out how to do that by now. But see, what God is actually teaching me right, from the people, from many of you that he has actually put into my life, from what God is teaching me through you, through my family, through other people he's put in my life, and what God is teaching me as I read through the life of Jesus, is that sometimes, sometimes it takes a party. See, Jesus loved parties because Jesus loved people. And today, as we watch where it is that Jesus goes, we're going to see that Jesus actually goes out of his way to invite somebody into the party that absolutely everybody was shocked to have invited. Take out your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 4. If you're using one of those Bibles in the seat back in front of you, it's on page 1,651. Now, John chapter 4, we're going to begin reading at verse 3. And John tells us this. In verse 3, he says, Now he, that's Jesus, Jesus, I'm sorry, he left Judea, and he, Jesus, went back once more to Galilee. Verse 4, now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. Now the interesting thing about that statement is actually it's not true. Jesus actually didn't have to go through Samaria as he went back to Galilee. In fact, the, the most common route, the traditional route for a Jewish person to take as they were traveling from Judea, which was in the south, to Galilee in the north would have been for them to head uh, to head due east toward the Jordan River, to go north up the Jordan River until they hit the Sea of Galilee and then they would backtrack west and they would head back towards the city uh, of Nazareth. And the reason why this was the traditional route, this was the common route for for Jewish people to take at this time, was because more than 700 years before this event actually occurred, uh, a, a Syrian king by the name of Sargon, he actually came in in 722 B.C., and he decimated the entire northern part of the nation of Israel, and he conquered 10 out of the 12 tribes of Israel, effectively separating the nation in two. And during that time, he actually exported out almost every single Jewish man living in those ten tribes. And at the same time, he brought in a whole bunch of non-Jewish people from all the other nations that he conquered, and he resettled them in that area. And so over time, these Jewish people and these non-Jewish people they began to to marry each other. And eventually, after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, there wasn't a single person left in the northern kingdom that was purely Jewish, or or frankly, purely anything. And the Jewish people who, who were left in the southern area, in the area of Judea, they just thought this whole situation was absolutely despicable. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't believe what had happened to their own country. And so consequently, they didn't want to have anything to do with those, those people who lived up in the north, and, and they developed a, a very racist attitude towards them. And they, and they called them, they actually referred to them um, by what we would think of as a, a racial slur. They called them Samaritans, and they refused to have anything to do with any of them for any reason. But John, as he begins telling us about this very familiar story in the life of Jesus, John actually begins by telling us that Jesus had to go through Samaria on his way to Galilee. Now, I think that one of the most amazing descriptions anywhere in the New Testament about who Jesus is is actually given to us in a single statement. It's a one-line statement that the Apostle Paul makes in the very beginning of Colossians. And he tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Now, I I don't know about you all, but I absolutely love that. And and the reason I love that is because it reminds me, if I ever want to know what God is like, all I have to do is look at Jesus. If I ever want to know what it is that God feels about something, all I have to do is listen to Jesus. And if I ever want to know who it is that God would actually invite to his party, all I need to do is watch Jesus. And so John continues in verse 5, and he tells us this. So Jesus, he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, which was near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. This is a a picture of Jacob's well. That is the actual well that we're reading about today in John chapter 4. It's Jacob's well. It's about 100 feet to 150 feet deep, um, depending on what time of year it is and exactly where the water table is at. So it's a very, very deep well. And you can tell that now it's inside of a building because in 380 AD, a church was actually built around this entire site. You can go there today. You can see um, this well. You can actually still draw water out of this well. And John tells us that Jesus, as tired as he was from the journey, he sat down by this well, and it was about the sixth hour. That would be noon, our time. And a Samaritan woman came to draw water from the well. Now, why is it that John's telling us, why is John making a point to say that this all happens at noon? Why does he get that specific with us? Well, because at 12 noon, at this particular location in this part of the world, at this time of year, it would have been very, very hot, likely over 100 degrees. And and nobody, absolutely nobody, chooses to do very physical, very strenuous work, like lifting bucket after bucket of water out of a 100-foot deep well at the hottest part of the day. And so the only reason this woman is in this very public place right now is because she thinks there isn't going to be anybody else there. But see, Jesus is there, and Jesus says to her, will you give me a drink? Because, verse 8, his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews, they do not associate with the Samaritans. And so Jesus looks this woman in the eye and he asks her a very simple question. Can I have a drink out of your jar? But this Samaritan woman is is completely taken back because she can't believe that this Jewish man is actually speaking to her. You're asking to drink after me, she's thinking. You're asking to touch what I've touched, to place your lips where I have placed my lips? I mean, this is unheard of. And, And notice she doesn't even answer Jesus' question, does she? I mean, she's still so taken aback by the fact that Jesus is just talking to her in the first place. And see, Jesus wasn't so much asking her for something as he was making a statement about how it is that he actually viewed her. See, Jesus was saying, I view you as one who is worthy to drink after. Jesus is saying, I view you as one that I am not afraid to embrace. Jesus was saying to her, I I view you as one who, who I am not afraid or ashamed to touch. And then don't miss what Jesus says next in verse 10. Because see, this is where maybe you are at today, right now in this moment. Because Jesus looks at her and he says to her in verse 10, if you knew, if you only knew, Jesus said. If you only knew, and then look at the next word, the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you, right? Not traded with you, not bargained with you, not coerced you, not demanded something from you in exchange. He would have given you, Jesus says, living water. Now, this woman... She can't understand, she can't even believe what's going on right now. And Jesus very clearly is changing the whole context of the conversation, isn't he? All, all of a sudden, he's no longer talking about having a physical need met. He, he's, he's speaking of, of a deeper need. He's speaking of a deeper longing, isn't he? An appetite, if you will. An appetite that every single one of us, every single person has. And Jesus is saying to this woman, and he says to all of us, he says, I can actually meet that need. I can fill that inside of you. But she doesn't understand. She doesn't comprehend what it is that Jesus is saying to her. And so in verse 11, she responds to Jesus and she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater? Than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his flocks and his herds, she knows that there's something more going on here than just some Jewish guy asking her for water. And she knows that Jesus is making a claim, doesn't she? She knows that Jesus is offering her something better than what it is that she can actually get for herself. See, she knows that this well was given to her by her ancestor, Jacob. And she knew that Jacob was big time because there was Abraham, there was Isaac, and there was Jacob. And this is Jacob's well. And so she says to Jesus, Jesus, are you telling me? Jesus, are you really saying to me that you have something better, that you're willing to give me better than this well? that was given to me by my ancestor Jacob. See, she knows that there's more to this conversation than what she understands, but she's still not quite sure, is she? She's still not quite sure what it is that Jesus is really offering. So Jesus tells her in verse 13, Everyone who drinks this water, Jesus is saying, will be thirsty again. Now she knew that. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I will give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, if we read a little bit farther on in John's gospel, John records for us Jesus' own definition of those two very important words, eternal life. John tells us in John chapter 17, verse 3, that Jesus' definition, these are Jesus' words. Jesus says this, now this is eternal life, that you would know the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Jesus says that is what eternal life is. It is a relationship with your heavenly Father. A relationship that comes through his son Jesus. A relationship, Jesus says, that will quench a thirst that goes beyond physical thirst. It will quench something in you, Jesus says, that you have been trying to quench for your entire life, and yet you end up thirsty every single time. See, over and over again, all throughout the scriptures, every time we watch where Jesus goes, we find Jesus constantly going to people. Constantly going to the least and the lost and the lonely. And repeatedly we hear Jesus saying the very same thing. I'm not here for the healthy people. I'm here for the sick people. I'm not here for people who aren't looking for water. I am here for the thirsty people. I am here for people who know that they need a savior. And Jesus says, I am here to bring you, to bring you in. Jesus says, even though you may feel like everyone in your life has pushed you out, kept you out, and forgotten about you, Jesus says the God of the universe is here in the flesh right now to let you know that he wants you at the party. Now, how should she respond to Jesus' offer? I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? But see, maybe you're thinking today the very same thing that she was thinking. Which is that if he is offering something like that to me, then he can't possibly know who I really am. Because see, if he really knew who I was, he would never want me at his party. But see, Jesus' invitation wasn't a mistake. Jesus knew exactly who he was talking to. He knew all about her past, and so Jesus lets her in on a little secret. And he says to her in verse 16, he says, go, call your husband and come back. Jesus says, hey, go get your husband, bring him back. I want to talk to both of you about this. And she's thinking to herself, okay, I should have seen this coming. This is where it happens, isn't it? I have no husband she replied. Jesus looks at her and says, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Now let's just kind of pause here for a moment. Do you know why Jesus does this? Do you know why it is that sometimes when you come to church, Why it's a little bit uncomfortable? Do you know why sometimes you actually come in here and when you do choose to come, you you actually find yourself thinking something kind of strange. And you would never say this out loud to anybody. This is what you feel, though, in your heart. You you find yourself thinking to yourself, you know, I I hope that whatever it is they're talking about, I hope it's just not too personal. I hope it's not, you know, too much about me. I hope it's a little distant. I hope it's a little out there. I hope it's just a little, you know, heady, maybe a a little slightly irrelevant. I, 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 I I just don't want it to be too personal this weekend. Do you you know why it is that sometimes you find yourself actually thinking or feeling that? It's because what Jesus wants to do in your life is the exact same thing that Jesus does in the life of this woman in this very moment. Because see, in this moment, Jesus is putting this woman in touch with the very thing that she she thinks is going to keep her out of the party. And Jesus puts her in touch with her thirst. And Jesus is letting her know, I know exactly who you are. I I know all about your past and you are welcome to be here with me. Jesus says your past, your background, your story, your history. None of that is getting in the way of, of me inviting you into the party And your past, it shouldn't get in the way of you responding to my invitation. Because I am, Jesus is saying, I am inviting you to be in. See, this is Jesus' way of saying, listen, I know all about who you are. I know that life has left you thirsty because of decisions you've made, decisions other people have made that have affected you, even your own attempts to quench your thirst that haven't worked. Life has left you thirsty, hasn't it? And notice what she does next. Because she does the exact same thing that every single one of us that we are tempted to do every time Jesus gets just a little too close, or frankly, when anybody any anybody gets a little too close, and she changes the subject, and she and she says to to Jesus, "I can see that you're a prophet." It's like, okay, yeah, you think obviously, and she begins this very weird. I mean, you read this; it's this very weird emotionally detached theological conversation, right? But it keeps, notice it keeps all the lines nice and neat. All the boxes are exactly where they're supposed to be, aren't they? Because the Jews, you do this, and we Samaritans, we do that, and and we worship this way, and you worship that way, and yada, yada, yada. In other words, Jesus, I don't want to talk about my past. Because I don't like the way my past makes me feel. And besides, Jesus, it's none of your business. Because I can defend every single decision I made, Jesus. I have a reason for what I did. I know all about my past. And my past isn't your business. So I don't want to talk about that anymore. And so she changes the subject. And what does Jesus do? mean, don't miss this. What does Jesus do? He just goes with it, doesn't he? And he actually lets her change the subject. Don't miss that. And so they talk about theology and they talk about God and they talk about the Jews and the Samaritans and worship. And she starts to feel like the conversation is getting safe again. And as she's gathering her bucket and her items and as she's preparing to leave, she kind of looks at Jesus on her way out and she looks at him and she says in verse 25, I know... I know that the Messiah is coming, the one called Christ is coming, and when he comes, she says, he's going to explain everything to us. In other words, awkward, got to go, see ya. What does Jesus do? Looks her straight in the eye and says, I who speak to you am he. I don't think I could even possibly begin to put into words how powerful this moment would have been for this woman. The king of the universe has chosen this moment to show up in front of her and to tell her the visible image of the invisible God stands before her and tells her, I know everything about your past, I know all about you, and you can still be in you still have a place at my party. See, the truth is, this event, it shatters every single one of our paradigms when it comes to who's in and who's out, and who is God really, and what does God think about me? How do we know? Look what she does next, verse 28. Then leaving her water jar. I mean, she actually leaves the very thing she came there for in the first place. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me about everything I ever did. Could this be? I mean, could this be the Christ? Because, see, he has offered something to me. He has given me the invitation of a lifetime. And if he's offered it to me, I bet he would offer it to you as well. And there was just something that was so different about her since she met Jesus. Something in her voice, something in her eyes, something in her demeanor that was just so different than these people who knew exactly who and what she was. Something, something that was so different about her since she met Jesus that the very people who despised her for everything that she represented, they could not dismiss her anymore. And they end up following her back to where she came face-to-face with Jesus. And they, too, meet Jesus for the very first time. And then look at how this amazing event ends in verse 39. Many, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony that he told me everything I ever did. Many people actually came to believe in Jesus as their personal Savior, simply because this woman told them about what Jesus did for her. Now, um, this this past week, um, I just want to share with you what what this message kind of did for me, in my heart, as I read this story, as I thought about it, as I thought about sharing it with you today, um, because this was kind of a gut check for me. And so um, I hope it is for for each of you as well, because I think this story in the context of what we're talking about as a church in this series, I think this has to seriously make us rethink who it is that each one of us individually, who it is that we actually invite to the party. Because, see, maybe you work with somebody, maybe you live next to somebody who's just very different than you. They're from a different background than you, a different culture than you. Their life story, their family, their lifestyle, it's just so different than you, and because they're different than you, you just thought that they wouldn't like you. See, the truth is what's natural for every single one of us, even for me, what's natural for us is to just be kind to our kind. But when we actually handle our relationships the way that we see Jesus handling our relationships, when we approach our relationships the way that Jesus did, By actually showing genuine care and concern and respect for everybody, no matter how different they are from us, what we soon discover is that our guest list, it begins to grow pretty rapidly, doesn't it? See, Jesus was talking to this woman, now don't miss this, he was speaking to this woman about the most intimate, the most important details of her life. Jesus wasn't afraid to confront anybody with anything. But when he did, when he did, his approach was always to share genuine concern, genuine love for the person that he was speaking to. Jesus' approach was always, I love you, I care about you, I am concerned for you, and I want God's best for you. So let me ask you this if as the church, as followers of Jesus, and I don't mean corporately, I mean this, this is an individual, you, individual church, if those of us who are followers of Jesus, individually, if we began to expand our guest lists a little bit, do you think that would actually help our faith? Now, hear me. I don't mean, do you think that this would make our brand better? That's not what I mean. I'm not talking about our brand as Christians. That's not it. I'm saying to you personally, do you think that expanding your guest list would actually help your individual relationship, your faith relationship with your Savior and with your God actually grow? See, I would argue, I would actually argue that expanding our guest list personally is one of the ways that God actually grows our faith. That God actually does that in us. Because, see, our view of God is going to be as small as the size of our party. And if we keep our party to just the people who are like us, our view of God is going to be pretty small. And, see, that's not what I want for me. It's not what I want for any of you. It's certainly not what I want for our church or for our community, for our world. instead I actually think that God that our view, our appreciation and our understanding of who God really is I think God actually grows that in every single one of us individually as we invite the least and the lost and the lonely to the party in his name. Because see, don't forget this. I was the woman at the well. You You are the woman at the well. Who is God asking you to just simply go back and invite to the party? Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this amazing, amazing event in the life of your son. Father, an event that tells us so much about who you are, an event that tells us so much about what your heart is for every single one of us and for every single person in this world. Father, thank you that the promise of eternal life isn't just a promise for someday, somewhere, but instead it's a promise for today. It's a promise for a relationship with you right now, a relationship that quenches a very deep thirst inside every single one of us. A thirst, Father, that can actually, without you in our lives, actually has the potential to drive us into every, every self-destructive habit and behavior that's imaginable. And, Father, for the person that's sitting here in these seats right now and who who really wants the subject to change right about now because things are getting just a little too close. Father, my prayer for them is that you would send your Holy Spirit to open their hearts and their eyes and so they can see you, so that they can hear you speaking to them, telling you that you really do want them at the party. And, Father, for the person that's here today who is just so convinced that their past actually prevents them from being with you or being used by you, Father, my prayer is just that you show them your glory. Use their tears, use their scars, use their hurts to help somebody else know that, Jesus, you are here. And what you're offering them is better than anything that they could get for themselves. And Father, for all of us, for me, for every single time that I have looked down on, rejected, or hurt another person who was not like me or like us, intentionally and unintentionally, Father, please hear us as we personally and silently confess our sin to you. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has chosen you, that Jesus has died, he did die, to pay for your sin, so that you personally would not perish, but instead have eternal life with him. And because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because of the resurrection of your Savior, your sin, it is truly forgiven, in Jesus' name, amen.